In episode six of MobyCast, we introduced part one of a technical series around the creation of containers. Specifically, John and Chris teach me about base images and volume mounts. Welcome to MobyCast, a weekly conversation about containerization, Docker, and modern software deployment. Let's jump right in. What we're going to talk about today is we're, we're going to go a little deeper, a little more technical. We're, we're, um, we're going to talk about containers themselves and how we have been setting them up. So we're going to talk about the Docker file and what, how we configure it, what we like to do, um, what, what features of Docker we make use of. Because there are about a billion and three features of Docker, and, and I think we use a solid 15. And I, I want to talk about at least a few of those uh, and and why we don't, you know, what makes what makes our our Docker setup work well for us. So to get started, um, I think the first thing that makes sense, uh, and this is this is a good idea that Rich had, is instead of just jumping right in and saying, "Well, this is our Docker file and this is how we set up," we should probably say the different. You know, we use containers in different ways, um, and so maybe Chris, you can tell tell us a little bit about how we use containers. Sure. So yeah, I mean, containers you can run them anywhere the full spectrum of your of your pipeline ranging from running on your local dev machine for just kind of doing the the dev test integrate cycle um through uh automated testing on um your your test platforms and then of course uh actually using containers for deploying your services and so companies you know teams they can use any mix of that um and it kind of just dives into the you know what are the the features the benefits that you're looking for what's what are the missing pieces to kind of dictate what part you may you may adopt so maybe maybe the important takeaway here is that you know you don't have to use docker through all those phases um sometimes it might make sense where you really are looking for this uh feature of like um getting away from well it works on my machine Right. Um, and having ways for like maybe your product managers to be able to actually bring up the latest code base themselves on their development uh, on a, on our, on our laptop or something like that. So running Docker locally might make sense, but you already have maybe, um, a rich system in place for doing CI and, and, uh, you have a, a different way of doing deployment and you may not want to do that. So I'm hearing you say that we run, we run containers on our dev machines to do development and to do local testing. I think you also said that we run containers in staging or on a test machine or in production. Um, would it be fair for me to say that in each of those different scenarios, or, or you could call them container use cases, do we? is it always that our containers are configured to run exactly the same way? Or would we have a situation where um, we've actually built our containers differently to, to fit the use case that we're running it in? Absolutely. Um, how you how you configure and orchestrate your containers um, will definitely be different um, depending on your, your use case. Uh, one of the, so what we, we've talked about this before in previous episodes where one of the major benefits of containers is that they're these, these, they're isolated, right? They're, um, they're basically an Island. Um, it's a, you know, a hermetically sealed environment for your, for your application, if you will. Right. Um, where it really doesn't know about, um, or it knows very little about the outside world and, and, and vice versa. And there's some, some great, great benefits to that for just as far as just um, security um, or 
kind of decoupling and and having just running many of these things on the same machine, all thinking that it's only them that's there. So, but that kind of a, one of the first things that um, developers will run into is, wow, this is like super difficult to deal with, right? Because now in order for me to, maybe I'm outputting logs to standard out and standard error. Um, and so before I would just see it on my, on my command line, um, when I, when I ran my code now, when I'm in it, if I'm running under Docker, well, that's actually inside the Docker container. Um, and so now I have to do something different, right? I may, I may shell into the Docker container, like I would shell into a remote machine and that gets to be, you know, kind of, okay, this is different. And this is like, kind of feels like a hurdle. Um, there's other hurdles in that process as well. Um, especially with like the, uh, hot reloading, right? So especially if you're doing things like this is really a painful uh, part of the process. If you are dockerizing like a client application, like you're writing React code or or JavaScript front end JavaScript code, and you want to go change like a, even like a div tag or something like that, um, the first thing out of the box would be like, wait a minute, I have to rebuild my Docker image to see that one little change. Um, this is really really painful. So definitely in the development environment, there's ways to make to, to to alleviate this pain, and so you end up kind of punching some holes into that isolated container um, to to allow these um, these kind of like these use cases to make it more developer friendly. That said, you know you need to know what repercussions that may have, um, and we can talk a bit more about that as we as we go through this, but. But there are some 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 trade offs to that because you're now giving up some of the the great features of Docker in trade in 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 exchange for um, better productivity for for your developer. Right, and you're getting into exactly what I wanted to start to get into. So we are we're dealing with setting up our containers. We set it up in the in the way that Google or Stack Overflow said would work, and we start developing, and we're, we're hating life. Um, so the first one of the first features of of Docker that we use is this ability to punch holes into the container so that we can stop hating life uh, by, by, well, maybe we'd love life, right? Maybe all of a sudden now that we have, have to wait a minute and a half between each div change, we get to um, binge a show on Netflix, but really we've lost our, pr- our productivity. Um, so uh, yeah, let's talk about how you, how do you punch holes into the container and, how do you make sure that you only do that in dev? Because it does sound sort of dangerous to do that anywhere but dev. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, one of the more common ways to do that is through volume mounts. And so what you're, what you're doing is that you're now um, volume mounts in with Docker allow your container to share data with its host. Um, so remember, all containers require a host um, system on which to run, on which the Docker daemon is running and, and spinning up your, your Docker container processes. Um, so you always have a host host computer. And so that's typically, like if you're running locally on your machine, you know, that's your, that's your MacBook is, is your, is going to be your host computer. And so the, the local drive on your MacBook would be the host file system. When you spin up your container, you can say, Hey, I want to have a volume mount and I'm going to map a path in the container, a file system path inside the container to map to a file, uh, file system path on my host. So that means now whenever I read or write from the file system inside the container, it's actually reading and writing from the same uh, location on the host system path. So 
do so so volume volume mounts are definitely one of the the core techniques here for for doing this and and it's not even just for necessarily uh you know hot reloading or developer productivity it's also for things like um just insight into what's what's going on so like a really great use case for this would be log files um so you you may you know, your application almost certainly is generating log files of, to indicate, you know, what's going on in the system and diagnostics and know when, when warnings are happening or errors are happening. Um, you can punch this hole in the container to say, hey, write these log files out to my, my host system so that I can now, see, as, a dev, as a developer, I can like tail those log files inside my command line. I don't actually have to go inside the container to see it. And they can also persist across, across sessions. So volume mounts are definitely one of the, the core techniques here. Um, so vo- with volume mounts, this gets really, really confusing to me because, okay, so now our logs are, are you know, all of a sudden it's, it almost feels like we're developing on our local machine again where we're making hot deploys and all of our logs are coming into a place where we don't have to SSH into a, a host container to see them. Um, so I can, I can be developing, you know, I'm a developer, I'm, I'm working away. I've been working away three or four hours. I've maybe even done three or four features during that time. How do I know when it's time to do a build for real? Like, because at, at this point, it's like I'm not even really using the container anymore. I'm, it's, the container is just sort of running the code, at, but I'm doing the code on my local machine. Um, how, when, do you, when does the developer know when to stop doing the, the hot deploy stuff and start and like make a build? Yeah, so um, it's a great it's a great question. Um, we can probably talk a little bit about like, well, what's like what's the harm, right? Like what, like okay, we 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 have this volume system mount. So and and like let's talk about the hot reloading um, portion of this. So like as a developer, I want to you know make some tweaks, have that automatically get picked up. Um, my code's running inside of a Docker container. Um, have that be reflected instantly so that now on the screen I can see what what happened without doing a, a Docker image rebuild. So my volume mount is basically sharing the same directory, um, the, the same file path as where the actual source code is. And so now I can edit the source code on my host machine. Um, those Because that is now um, shared via volume mount with my container, the container, um, you know, you set that up, your process running inside your container to have hot reloading um, for a file system watcher, so that when when changes happen in the file system, it just knows, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna recompile right with with Bobble, um, or I'm gonna um, restart Node or something like that, whatever the the case may be, um, and those changes immediately happen. And so even though it's still running inside the container, I now see the the differences. So that sounds pretty good. Um, the downside to this is. You know, you've now you're you're sharing quite a bit of the host system. So so the surface area is pretty broad, right? It's basically your whole source code tree. Um, and the big danger here is, what if you now have artifacts, pieces of code, um, various files that perhaps aren't checked into your source repo? They're only on that one local machine, um, such that. Hey, it works fine on my machine, and so you're you're running inside this container that's 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 sharing this volume system mount for your um, uh, for kind of ease of, of of development. You run your test, everything's working great, and so you check it in the, to you and you push it to the remote to the remote repo and source code, and you're like, hey, job well done. Someone else on your team does a pull, 
they run it and immediately it's broken, right? It doesn't work. Um, so, and that's because there were specific files only on your machine that you forgot to check in. Um, you didn't know that because um, your container was had access to those files outside of its process out of, outside of its process space, um, and so that's the that's the downside of, of doing this. So the the way you kind of get around this is you is you do a hybrid, right? So you can using like Docker Compose, you can set up multiple different containers. Um, and one of the things we like to do is you'll have one container that is for your when you're doing this dev iteration process, right? And so you call that like my app dash dev or something like that. So it's kind of, it's a bit, you have to be a bit more mindful that you're running that, that the dev version of it. And that, that particular definition would have the volume system out defined. Chris, let me stop you for a second. You just introduced something called Docker Compose. My, my understanding is that Docker Compose will let me create multiple Docker files and each Docker file defines my container? So uh, Docker Compose is a tool that allows you to run multiple containers um, as a, and, and you can have those as kind of like as a, as a cohesive unit. And you can run, you don't have to run all of them. Um, you can pick and choose which ones you want to run. Um, but it's just a way of, it, it, it's, it's a way of like automating the command line for Docker of like starting, stopping services and whatnot. Docker Compose is like a, um, kind of like this value-added surface, a wrapper on top of that stuff. And okay. it allows you to easily define how these how these containers should be started, how they should be configured, um, that type of thing. That's the part that I'm kind of confused on. So so in order to, you know, we're punching a hole in the file system or in the container by using these volume mounts. And I think that that's the thing that you have to do in your Docker file. You have to say, Docker file, punch a hole for me, please. And is Docker, uh, Docker Compose, is that creating... One version of the Docker file that uses volume mounts and another version of a Docker file that doesn't, or is it doing it some sort of mm-hmm. other way? So that, that volume mount is actually defined um, outside the image. So you, you could do oh, it, it by hand. Yeah, you could do it by hand, right? So you could say, so when you do a Docker run command, you would specify as a command line flag to that saying, like, here's the volume mount I want to have for this, for this mm-hmm. container. Um, likewise, you would specify, like if you're using Docker Compose, inside your Compose file, you would say, Okay, here's this. Here's the container I'm defining. Here's its name. Here's the image, the Docker image it should use. Oh, and here's a volume. Here's the volume mounts. You can have more than one volume mount too, right? So, so it's so it's done out above and beyond the the image. It's part of its runtime environment. Why did I think that you could do that? You do volume mounts inside the Docker file. Maybe you can do them in there too if if you know that that's what you want every time. Well, what you're doing inside the Docker, maybe what's confusing is you're you have two different locations, right? You have, you have the Docker, the Docker file has to know when it builds a Docker image, it has to know about the host file system as well as the eventual container file system, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're basically building, you're defining how that, how that, how that container should look when it does get instantiated from the Docker image. And so there's two different file system spaces when you're dealing with it, because you have to, you're basically saying like, "Hey, my source files are coming from my host, and so that has one path." Um, mm-hmm. And then my, I want to write them inside the image, and that's a different path, right? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. so in a way, you have, you kind of have already this, this, this volume mount, if you will, when you're building Docker images. But that's just for building the bits. And remember, Docker is totally portable, right? So we would never bake in 
like a file system mount because there's no guarantee that that path would even exist yeah, on whatever host you ran that image on, right? Right. So, so it, it has to be defined. It has to be specified at runtime um, mm-hmm. on whether you want that or not. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's a good explanation. Thanks. So I kind of lost, I forgot where we were. You... Yeah, I think, so we were kind of saying like, hey, during the development mode, you would have one way of configuring your condition. Yeah, so you, you right. would say, when I'm in development mode, I'm going to run my Docker container with this file system mount, right? And I'm going to iterate and test and, and everything. But before I actually commit my changes to, the, to my source code repo, I have to run it in that non-promiscuous mode. Right, I have to use. I have to now run my container without the volume system mount and verify that it's working. And that is also the mode in which your your build machine or your CI machine is running its test. Right, so you have these other these other safeguards in place along the way to make sure that you are indeed building a clean, pure image. So then going back to my original question of when a developer would do that, they would probably do it when they would normally do it, whenever they feel like they're ready to ship to the rest of the team. Exactly, when they're ready to commit to the remote repo. And then, of course, if they didn't do that, right, and then your Circle CI machine, your, your, your CI machine runs its test, it breaks the build, then everyone knows, it's like, ah, John, <laughs> John didn't do it. He didn't, you know, he, John was lazy. He didn't run tests. He didn't right. do it the right way. right. Um, okay, so now we know about being able to do these volume mounts to be able to either do hot deploys or get your logs um, without having to shell into your running container. Um, I think another another topic that that covers like how do we make our containers is just what do we start with? Um, you can start with just a plain old you know Unix machine with nothing on it. Um, or you can start with some containers that already have stuff on it, like a database, or a, or maybe they have Nginx um, or some other thing. So, how do we decide what to start with? Absolutely, yeah. So it's another, you know, a great question and a kind of a an area um, with with lots of lots of discussion around it. Um, so, yeah, when you're when you're building a Docker image, you know, one of the first things you have to decide is like, what's my base image? What am I starting from? And so, you know, typically you're you know, you need to start with like just at the very least, like what operating system, like what what uh, what flavor of, of an operating system are you starting with? And the choice of of where to start kind of ends up, you know, have to take into you know various factors, things like okay, ease of use, like what packages are installed and how much I have to maintain versus like how much someone else is maintaining. So if you if you kind so you can think of it as like how much are you bringing in? You can go with a very, very small base image, um, which means the surface area is much smaller, which gives you perhaps much better um, performance, um, stability, and definitely security. But the cost, the trade-off is, is like now you have to do a lot more yourself um, on that. So you may have to do a bunch of additional steps to install the necessary software that you need, like Maybe you need a compiler, um, and you now have to kind of build that into your Docker image yourself manually, right? So you have to you have to define that out. Um, versus, you know, you can start with a with an image that someone else has made. Like you said, it may be specifically for like Python, or um, it may be for running Postgres or something like that. And you can start with that kind of image. But um, again, the trade off is is 
just re- you're bringing it your surface area is so much more increased there's so much more software running inside that base image that now you're you're opening yourself to more security vulnerabilities you have uh the issue of like am i am i up to date with the latest like what am i actually pulling in um and it also puts more onus on you to really understand like when you derive from that base image, you have to go like understand like what is that base image doing? Um, and so there's some responsibility there, just as if you were to pull in any other piece of like open source code. Um, if you go use, you know, get some module from NPM um, or, or a Ruby gem or something like that, like it's your responsibility to know like what's in that code. Um, and so kind of the same issues come into play with base images. So you said something that I'm not sure I agree with, because uh, let me just try to say why. You talked about the surface area being smaller or bigger, depending on your base image. At the end of the day, if you need, uh, let's call it, you need Python on there. At the end of the day, uh, whether whether Python was pre-installed or whether you compile and install it on, the, on a Docker image that didn't have it, you still end up with a container that has Python on it. So what is the difference? Security-wise, I wouldn't imagine there is one. Well, if that was the only difference, then sure, it's not. But um, realize when you, like, maybe the Python image that you took is based on um, the Jesse Debian distribution. And that not only has Python, like, support for it, but it also has maybe the Java JVM on it. And it has maybe some uh, networking services that you really shouldn't have have installed on there, right? So um, that's that's where you kind of comes into play where you have to go look to see what is it that you're inheriting from what base image you're using. Um, Got it. it. So if you choose a base image that somebody (laughs) else made somewhere else, you know, it could be trustworthy, but it comes with whatever it comes with. And if it's got stuff you don't need on it, that's Mm -hmm. probably a no, no for production. Yeah. Can I jump in with a question or two? Sure, sure, sure. Go ahead, Rich. So you have a new client and it's a, it's a new product. And so you're not, you're not uh, inheriting a legacy product. You're, you're building it from scratch and you've gone through the strategy sessions and you start to think through how you're going to build this. Do you guys as Kelsey, the team start with um, even just bullet pointing what the base image needs to be? And is that how you start that project by building a base image from which all the developers will use? Or do you sort of like evolve that image over time um, as the complexity of it Increases. I know that you're probably always going to have to evolve it, but I always think of like the efficiency of does Kelsis just have like a base image that they use for most of their projects, or at least do they start all of their projects with this idea um, of how a base image might look, or are you always sort of like doing that alongside at the same time of development? So yeah, so that that process is definitely evolving, um, and it kind of depends too on the the project itself and and whether it's um, kind of an existing you know. Uh, an existing client where um, we have more of a track record, we know exactly what the requirements are and like what the environment should look like versus a new one. So um, one of our uh, bigger clients with multiple projects on it, we've definitely gone to this route of having a common base image that we use across all these because it ends up being like we're, we're very much a, a, a Node.js shop on the back end, um, Postgres, um, usually for, for backing stores. And then... Uh, Moving towards React for for our front end clients, so pretty pretty common tech stack across that, and so we have kind of and, and we also have some common um, some common uh, shared code libraries that we use 
um, across those projects, right. That are kind of specific to that particular client. So, so we definitely have gone towards having like a, a standard base image for that, that kind of includes that, that general setup and config for that type of environment. Is that base image one that we grab from somewhere? Is it one that we're uh, maintaining? Right. It's it's definitely one that we're maintaining, right? So there's, there's some benefits there. Um, So you can, uh, you you definitely can speed up your builds, right? By like identifying what parts are kind of common that you don't want to keep repeating over and over and over for every single one of the projects. So if you know that you're going to be doing like a, you know, npm install of like these 10 common modules that pull in these other dependencies um and every project is going to use that it's just kind of it knows that that those those underlying services are there then why have air, like all 10 projects do that um over and over themselves instead have one common image that's kind of baked into it and have those projects inherit off that so that they don't have to do that work um so it speeds that up um it makes the docker files definitely more modular but the cost, the trade-off is, is you now have to maintain that, that bait. You're, you're maintaining the base image, right? So you need to update that periodically. Um, and then likewise, need to make sure that everyone that's inheriting off that base image, that they're picking up the new updates. So not, you know, if they're locked into a specific version number then or a tag, then they need to, to change that. Um, so there's, there's some additional maintenance there, but a lot of benefits with it. Oh, sorry, Rich. I just wanted to take a shot at a, a rule of thumb. Um, cause to me, it feels like the biggest trade off is maintaining your base image and all the things that might be on it versus waiting for containers to build. Um, cause you can always build images with whatever you want on them and waiting for container and, and, and wait, when I say waiting for containers to build the, the benefit is you're always up to date. So during the dev, the dev process, you can say, just always grab the latest of everything so that I never fall behind. Um, so that seems to be the trade off. And it feels to me like a good rule of thumb is, um, if the stuff that's on the container is is sort of heavy to build, time consuming stuff. So I'm talking about things like Image Magic, which takes forever, or Nginx takes forever to build. You know, those are multi minute builds. I, I think Image Magic may take like ten minutes on a compute. You know, on a full big, beefy computer. I don't know how much it would take on a on a sort of stripped down container. So so if you're if you're sitting around waiting for 25 minutes for containers to get created. Uh, that's going to start to create bottlenecks in your in your CI/CD pipeline, right? Absolutely. Right. So so that trade-off has to be just right. Where as much as you can get built um, on the fly without waiting forever, it seems like you should just have it just have it get built by the container. That, then you know you're always up to date. You have less surface area to maintain. Um, but anything that's sort of hard that takes a long time, probably should build it in. Probably should should just bite the bullet and know that uh, every once in a while I got to go check and see if there's a new image magic or a new you know. Uh, whatever else it is uh, uh, that that you're maintaining on there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and paradoxically, um, there's actually some advantages sometimes to not being completely up to date. Oh, sure, sure. Right. So yeah. like, this is actually like one of the arguments for for having like a common base image where it is locked in because you can you can test and ver- this is especially true like in 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 the land of Node where npm you, you know you have npm modules that you're getting um, from the open source community. Those, those are changing all the time. Um, uh, people are supposed to follow Semver, but they don't have to. And some of those authors don't even understand Semver. And so you may find that um, by saying, hey, I want the latest minor version, it actually breaks my code. Um, right. And right. you didn't do anything, right? It was No code was checked in at all. No changes were made. But just by virtue of doing a new build, it's now broken and it doesn't work. And so 
um, sometimes kind of locking yourself in with a, with a base image on certain things like that. There's, there's some advantages to it. I just, yeah. I just really want to drive that, that point home. Cause I had a startup at one point and we, it was a Ruby on rails startup and gems just change all the time. They're just constantly in flux. And we had a developer who's kind of the lead developer who sort of insisted on always being up to date because he never wanted to, you know, deal with the, the pain of getting too far behind and, and the amount of churn that that could cause. But this is one of those startups where we were, you know, we were working in our spare time. And it, I, eventually I was just like, dude, you have to stop doing this because every time you sit down to code, you spend your first hour and a half break, you know, fixing all the broken stuff that came from the gem update. Stop. Like, <laughs> let's, let's let them sit for a while. <laughs> yeah. Rich, I'm sorry. We, we cut you off a little bit ago. Um, is, is your question still there? Is it still? Yeah. It's, it's more of like a practicality question. Um, so I imagine, you know, much like get your repo, the remote repo that that houses these base images, they can be forked too, right? So you could have a base image that is really just a starting point for projects, and then you could fork it and then um, create it specific for that project. Is that is that true? And by um, I'm sorry, so you're saying uh, as far as like um, starting with someone else's base image, um, forking it, and that becomes yours. Is, is, was that was that your question? Yeah, I mean, is it is it similar to the way that your 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 um, open source code and Git would live? Where if I like it, I can just fork it and yeah, get I mean, as a starting point. Absolutely, in that um, you know what you can do is so Docker images they get um, you refer to specific Docker images basically by like their um, repo name as well as like a, a, a tag, right? And there are ways to kind of say. Like, hey, I want to, um, uh, you can reuse the same tag and like a common convention is, is latest, right? So you can say, I'm going to go get, um, you know, my base image colon latest. And then that way, whenever I build, theoretically, I'm getting whatever the current version of that, of that Docker image is. Um, conversely, you can lock it into a, to a, to a very specific tag. So you can say, I only want 2.6.2. Um, and so if you lock it into a certain tag like that, your base image, then you can absolutely think of that as a fork, right? So if you say, I'm going to create my own base image, it's based on this other third-party image, I'm going to lock it in to a certain version number, so to a certain tag, um, at that point, I have effectively effectively forked it. Um, and now, um, you know, it's not going it, to, it should, unless they republish under that tag, right, which they could do, um, but you know, in general, like that would be expectation would be that they they wouldn't. You, you so can also, Chris. It sounds like there's kind of three things if you do that. There's the original base image, its tag. Then there's going to be some code that you have in GitHub that says, "Here's how to make the image that I want from my original image," because it's going to install some stuff onto that original image. Mm-hmm. And then there's the artifact that it creates that you, that then gets put back into Docker Hub or or EMR. Um, no, no, ECR, uh, Elastic Container Registry, as the new, um, your new tagged base image, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and so like you can actually further protect yourself from from what I was just talking about there, where if if the original base image if they republish with the same tag, um, you know, almost all of these these Docker images that you would you would use as base images. You can see the actual Docker file um, that was used to create that, and so you could fork that, right? So you could go and 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 fork the actual Docker image 
uh, the, the Docker file for that image um, and then build it yourself. That's what I meant is that, you know, it's now it's my code and I can change the Docker file, but it mm-hmm. at least has, I don't know, however many lines of code's already done for me. And now I can add to it or remove mm-hmm. from based on the project. Yeah. Yeah. So almost, like I said, almost all these is, is definitely all the open source ones, the ones that are in, in public repos, these Docker images that are in public repos, um, they will publish the Docker file and you can, you can build it from, from the actual Docker file instead of, instead of grabbing it from the, from the repo that they published to. Right on. So I think that, you know, just given how technical today's conversation has been so far, you know, we've talked about volume mounts, we've talked about um, base images. I think that may be enough. I think that my head is already spinning with all this stuff. We had, we had thought about talking about, okay, now we have containers and they may need to talk to one another and how do you deal with that? Uh, but that sounds like maybe something we should talk about next week. Oh man, John, I am just getting started. We got so much more to talk about. I could, <laughs> I could keep you guys here for hours. <laughs> so no, seriously, I agree. I think um, that's a lot to cover today. It definitely was a bit of a deep dive, I think. Um, mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. plenty, plenty of stuff to talk about in future episodes. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today. It's been a fun experience. Great. Thanks, guys. Later. Well, dear listener, you made it to the end. We appreciate your time and invite you to continue the conversation with us online. This episode, along with show notes and other valuable resources, is available at mobicast.fm forward slash zero six. If you have any questions or additional insights, we encourage you to leave us a comment there. Thank you, and we'll see you again next week.